So good morning. Good morning, church family in person and online. It's so grateful. I'm so grateful to be with you together here. I'm Randy. I'm the lead minister here at the church. And uh, I'm going to be out uh, in the foyer by the pillar or by the grocery cart. There's a grocery cart out uh, by the pillar there. And I would love to have a little bit of FaceTime with you if you're feeling new here at the church. It's just so good to see you all. So good to see us uh, gathering just as the weeks are progressing. Uh, uh, the room is filling, and that is so encouraging, so encouraging. Um, if you are feeling new here at the church, I would absolutely love to invite you uh, to our starting point class, which is next week. It's going to be after second service, and it is uh, our opportunity to get to introduce ourselves to you. If you're feeling new, uh, we serve lunch um, and uh, our staff will be there, and uh, you'll learn oh, you know, what, what we believe, and then just kind of how we do church here at Windsor Road, how we pursue Christ together. Our, our vision is to be a life-changing community, passionately pursuing Christ. And so I would love to invite you, uh, just uh, let us know on, uh, you can let us know uh, through analog, or you can let us know digitally, too, uh, on the app. Uh, uh, and if you can let us know, that way we'll prepare for uh, how many to serve for lunch. So, um, so I invite you to that. Uh, also, uh, one of the ways that we pursue Christ together here at the church is uh, through serving. And so I just want to show you a couple of uh, uh, pictures yesterday morning, 15 of us were at Salt and Light Ministries sorting clothes and uh, just doing whatever needed to be done. Uh, it was our first Saturday service. Uh, my job was to take care of clothing hangers. So it's like, what can't Randy miss, mess up? You can't mess that up. So anyway, so for several hours, I was just there. It, it's a, it's, and it's a wonderful process, and uh, it's very organized in terms of uh, uh, little tasks broken down by a multitude of volunteer servants, and huge, huge change is a result of that too. So uh, first Saturday service, so uh, first Saturday of each month, uh, uh, we, and Michelle will talk to you a little bit more about that later uh, as our outreach director, but we just, we want to not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, and uh, this is an opportunity for us as well. So, so we have been in a journey through the uh, letter of first letter of Corinthians as a part of our teaching, uh, part of our worship time here at church. We, we, always, we have a large group Bible study is basically what this is, our teaching and preaching. And so lately we have been in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in a series titled United in Christ, United in Christ. First Corinthians was written about four years, maybe five, after the Apostle Paul planted this church, so it's really not that old of a church, and so the the folks who were there are fairly young in the faith, and so Paul is 
writing this letter to help teach them and grow their faith in Christ. Now, 1 Corinthians has 16 chapters. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and just meet me there in just the very beginning of 1 Corinthians. And I'll just quickly tell you how it's organized. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, the main chapter's theme there is unity. Paul says, I want you to be united in Christ. I don't want you to be united in personalities of the preachers. That's what was going on there. I want you to be united in the Lord. And that's one through four. So, in, And then after that, in chapters five through 15, I call it issues. It's almost like a Q&A. So the Corinthians had questions for the Apostle Paul. And so the Apostle Paul is just answering these questions uh, as they come up in 1 Corinthians. And we're going to look at one of the issues here a little bit later. And then uh, the, the letter in chapter 16 closes with just final instructions, closing instructions. So, so unity, issues, instructions. Say that with me on three. One, two, three. Unity, issues, instructions. One more time. Unity, issues, instructions. Now you know the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're here for the first time, you've caught up. All right. So uh, to that end, I'd like for us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to talk about an issue that this church had. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedies and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? 
God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is God's word. Wow. Talk about an issue. Houston, we have a problem. This chapter is one of the reasons that I'm a Christian. And here's what I mean by that. If I were trying to recruit you to join my faith, I would never include the information in this chapter. <laughs> right? I, I mean, I would never do that. I mean, the marketing department would just nix that. Instead, I would produce a glossy four-color brochure. There'd be happy, pretty people with intelligent children and beautiful smiles. And my brochure would talk about how if you would join, we're here to meet your needs and we want to make you comfortable. And in other words, I would appeal to your consumerist drives. That's what I would do. I would never discuss incest. Yet here we are. But this is, this is why I'm a Christian. Because, you see, the Bible speaks to real people with real issues and real problems and real congregations. This was a, this was a real letter. This was not fiction. We're, we're reading a letter that was once addressed to an assembly, a gathering of people who... Um, and who struggled with this. And, and the gospel reminds us the only people that God uses are broken people. And so, you know, on the one hand, you know, we do not want to be blasé about hurtful behavior. And there's, there's hurtful behavior going on here. And we don't want to come across as holier-than-thou legalists. Okay? So, so, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to answer three questions this morning. Let's, let's first identify the issue. I think we've kind of been introduced to it in these verses. But let's, let's, let's talk about what the issue is. The second question is, so what's the issue behind the issue? So there's an issue here, but there's an issue behind the issue. So, so there's a temptation to quickly drive by these verses because it's like, well, hey, I'm not sleeping with my stepmother. Let's go on. Okay, I'm fine. Well, let's just, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right? There's an issue behind an issue here that, that is relevant for all of us. So what's the issue? What's the issue behind the issue? And then, the, and then thirdly, what does Jesus want? So what's the big idea here in this passage? All right, this is where we're headed today. The issue, the issue behind the issue, and then what does Jesus want? Right? So the issue. Well, the issue is porneia. That's the issue. Porneia. Porneia, uh, literally, verse 1. Porneia is actually reported among you, and a kind of porneia which is not among the nations. So, so porneia, 
you can just hear that this word is related to our English word pornography. And in the first century, in this original use of the word, uh, it, it's a general term that described sexual intimacy outside the parameters of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Genesis 2, 24 says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So Orthodox Christianity holds that God defines and God designs marriage, not man. And in God's design for marriage, a man and a woman both leave their families of origin and come together in a sacred union. And in their God-created union, their marriage is intended to display the glory of Christ. So really, in biblical marriage, it is Christ-centered, Christ-exalting, Christ-glorifying. That's, that's God's vision for biblical marriage, that the coming together of the man and the woman, the, the, the groom and the bride would come to magnify and exalt Jesus Christ. And in biblical marriage, when a bride and a groom express their vows, it is not they or the pastor who happen to be the main actor. God is the main actor. Marriage is God's doing because it is a one flesh union which God performs. And what both Paul and the church understood was that within this beautiful, Christ-glorifying union of Genesis 2.24 marriage, sexual activity is holy and lovely. And church family, you can't change the Bible's truth about this matter out of a desire to make it more palatable to the people of our culture today. In fact, it's counterproductive to compromise biblical truth just to appease the culture. Okay? The broader context of 1 Corinthians 5 is actually 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 and 7, the center of which is chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can just look at the next page over. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 19 and 20, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. And porneia does not do that. And the problem that threatens unity is that the Corinthian church is tolerating certain boundaries that exceed even the culture. Did you catch that in verse 1? There is porneia of a kind that does not even exist among pagans. So, I mean, even Corinth didn't approve of this. The culture didn't even approve of this. A man has his father's wife. And th that is to say it's his stepmother. It's incest. Now, it's not a one-night stand. It's an ongoing, present tense, has his father's wife. And we don't know if the father died or if there was uh, a divorce. But nobody is saying anything. 
And of course, this is sinful on several fronts. First, Leviticus 18.8 says, you are not to have sex with your father's wife. She is your family. She is your father's family. But secondly, the culture itself disavowed this behavior. In the culture of Roman Corinth, the year A.D. 50, 55, this behavior was not only abhorrent, it was illegal. It was illegal. And so this is why Paul doesn't spend any time in chapter 5 trying to convince them that it's immoral. They already know it is. So the question I'm wondering is this. Why would this man do such a thing? Well, I mean, why would he do such a thing? And one scholar, a man by the name of Andrew Clark, makes a compelling case related to money. Uh, back then, a dowry came with a bride as a gift from her father. But if the marriage dissolved, Roman law allowed that the dowry could return to the father. But if she remarried, she could retain the dowry. You see where this is going? So to preserve the estate, the son married the father's wife. Money. Along those financial lines, stay with me now. Along those financial lines uh, was this cultural machinery called patronage. Patronage, uh, the patron-client system in the first century. So the patron was a person with power and success. And that person was at the top of the social ladder. The client was at the bottom of the social ladder or climbing the social ladder. The, uh, they, were, they were trying to make a life. And, and so the patron who is at the top of the ladder, I mean, what do you give someone who's at the top of the ladder? Well, you give them fame and celebrity and more power. And in exchange for that, you get the financial resources that the patron has. So do you see? It's, it's a quid pro quo. And that was the cultural environment of first century Rome. In fact, that was the cultural engine that propelled the empire. You add to that a culture that is highly competitive. And I mean in everything. Uh, competitive, that is to say it was about maximizing honor and minimizing shame. So gift giving and dinner invitations and you know, debates about the law and buying and selling. All of these were seen as challenges to honor. So add all that, all that together, you've got this, this hunger for money and power, this hunger for honor. You have this patron-client system, which likely meant that this man was one of the biggest gift givers in the church. And those factors made it awkward for others in the church to confront the guy. I'm not going to tell him, you tell him. I'm not going to talk to him about it. You talk to him about it. Nobody's talking about it. And this is what brings me to the issue behind the issue. So the issue is porneia, but here's the issue behind the issue. And, and I can only put it this way. Tolerance for worldliness in the embassy of Christ. Tolerance for worldliness in the embassy of Christ. You see, this is what we need to understand as we look through chapter 5. Paul had only one verse to say about this man. 12 verses to say about the congregation. 
So in other words, the man's blatant sin has exposed a latent problem in the church. And it didn't, it, the, the, the man's blatant sin didn't cause the latent problem. It just revealed the problem that was already there. See? And the problem was one of pride. Do you see that? Verse 2. And you are arrogant. You are arrogant. That word arrogant can also be translated puffed up. And it, so it makes it the fourth time that the word arrogance or pride or puffed up is used just in these, if you look back a few verses in chapter 4. Uh, for instance, look at chapter 4, verse 6. Paul talks about that you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Chapter 4, verse 18. Some of you are puffed up, arrogant, proud. Chapter 4, verse 19. I will find out who these arrogant people are. Puffed up or proud people are. Now, now, why are they puffed up? Why are they arrogant? Is it that they think that they're so spiritual that it's not that big of a deal? Oh, we don't make a fuss about what people do in the privacy of their home. Or, 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 oh my goodness, we're free in Christ. See? Or, 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 well, what about grace? Let's not judge. See? Would you let me get away with that? <laughs> Say no. <laughs> yeah. Pride produces worldly tolerance in the embassy of Christ. Church family, we are the embassy of Christ. We are the picture of what heaven is. is we, are, we are the taste of heaven. That's God's vision for us. That's God's vision for us. And so we're not talking about a one-night stand. We're, and we're not even talking about you know, ongoing sin from someone quietly sitting in the back row. We're talking, we're talking about a prominent person who claims to be a Christian all while brazenly living in a manner that embarrasses Christ and his church. And the only ones who aren't embarrassed is, are the church. Christ is embarrassed. Corinth is embarrassed. The church isn't embarrassed, though. Houston, we have a problem. They are enabling this man's behavior by their failure to speak truth to power. And as a result, the church is no different than the world. So the so do you see how relevant this is for us? So, so the question is, how is my pride producing tolerance for worldliness? This, this chapter confronts our consumerist culture. And, and here's what I mean by that. You know, the idea of, a, of loving a brother or sister in Christ to the extent that you would challenge that person on open, ongoing worldliness. You know that in a country with our freedoms, that person would likely just march right down to another church. And that's an example of how our culture of arrogant individuality has poisoned the church. Sin's primary roommate is pride. And pride always happens before the fall. And Paul's point is that where sin can live unhindered, the church re remains a social gathering, not a community empowered by Christ. 
The Apostle John put it this way in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, the pride of life, that is to say the pride of possessions, it's not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, so if how I respond to the stuff of this world is the same as the world, what's the point of our mission? So whose embassy do I represent? And make no mistake, you are someone's ambassador. You're representing someone. And Paul is saying, church, I, the embassy of Christ is represented by ambassadors for Christ. Verse 9 says, I wrote to you in my letter. Which letter was that? Which letter was that? And here is where we learn. I think this is fascinating. That Paul actually wrote them a letter before 1 Corinthians. But that letter has been lost in history. We don't, we don't know. But this issue has been discussed before. Paul says, you know, we have already talked about this. He says, I don't want you to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he qualifies that statement in verse 10. Keep your eyes on verse 10. He says, I don't mean the sexually immoral and swindlers and idolaters in this world. You'd have to leave the world for that. So in other words, Paul is saying, you need to have non-Christian friends. You, you need to have, you know, acquaintances of the world. I mean, you need to. Paul says, what I mean is that if someone calls himself a believer, a brother or sister in Christ, and there is, get this, ongoing, perpetual, present tense, brazen, arrogant, unrepentant sin from them, there needs to be a conversation. Verse 12 says, what have I to do with outsiders? So, so Paul doesn't expect unbelievers to act like believers because they're not. But if you call yourself a brother or sister in Christ, then it is in community that we encourage one another to live according to our calling. So Paul says, if you're not going to talk to about, if you're not going to tell him, I will. Paul says, purge the evil person from among you. Paul says, next Sunday... When I am with you in spirit, though absent in body, and when you are gathered for worship with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ present. So do you understand the dynamic of the Lord Jesus Christ's power that resides in his spirit-filled church when they gather? Paul says you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that he might be saved in the day of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, the phrase deliver this man over to Satan means draw a line in the sand. That's what it means. Not arrogantly, not like you're Wyatt Earp and this is the okay corral. 
but with much grieving. Did you see that? Ought you not rather to have mourned? You say to this brother, brother, you are damaging the reputation of the king. Brother, you are hurting Christ's beloved community. Brother, you you are disrupting the worship and learning of others. And this has gone on not just like one Sunday. This has just gone on perpetually. And you won't repent. How can we tolerate that? You, you, You may not live like Satan in the king's embassy. So go be with Satan. Please leave. Can you, can you imagine this letter being read aloud? And that this, So this letter would have been read aloud, in, not in a, an area like this, but actually in a much more intimate gathering, like someone's house church. It was a house church. So we're talking not a dynamic of several hundred people, but 40, 50? And it's read aloud, and you know, there's the brother right there. Paul is calling for a cultural reversal. See, in a day where patrons fired clients, Paul said that the clients need to do business with his patron here. Do you realize realize what this is here? Do you realize what Paul is teaching us? That this is this gathering I just sometimes fear that we think church is like a theater of individual seats and the lights go out and it's me and the screen. And that's not New Testament Christianity. In God's church, let me, let me say this, in God's church, if we are properly in community, and I'm talking about the kind of community that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 13, that entire beautiful uh, hymn of love, When we are in a 1 Corinthians 13 community, do you know there is supernatural protection over us that Satan cannot penetrate? Do you realize that? That collectively, collectively the embassy of Christ is a realm that Satan cannot enter. So right here, right now, you and I are being protected We're being protected by a a chief shepherd who loves us, by a Holy Spirit that indwells in us, by the word of God that guides us, and by a mutual love for one another. We're protected from evil. And when someone is put outside of that body because of ongoing, present tense, brazen, unrepentant sin, When someone is put outside that realm, then Satan is free to deal with them. And I want to tell you, nobody wants that. And one of two things will result. One of two things will result. That person who's been put out will hurt so badly that they will repent and they'll come back. Because they can't stand being away from people that they love. Or else they will prove that they never were believers to begin with. Because they can be happy in sin. 
And at that point, Satan doesn't even bother them because they're already his. So, so the destruction of the flesh is not the man's physical life. That's not what Paul wants. Paul isn't hoping for his physical death. What Paul wants is the death of sin's rule in him. That's what Paul wants. But the Corinthians aren't helping. <laughs> and so that's why Paul says, this boasting of yours is, is not good. Boasting not good of yours. That's the actual syntax of verse 6. Boasting not good of yours. Do you not know? Do you not know that you know, a little leaven works itself through the whole lump? So, so, you know, when there's just a little sin, it results in members who are just a little guilty. It's just a little gossip and a little lie and a little look and a little greed, and it adds up to a church with very little impact. So Paul says, purge the evil person from among, with tears and mourning. Purge the evil person from among you. And, you know, if you're new to Christianity, I, I understand this, this sounds like a cult. I understand that. But let me just say this. Um, in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, you can't attend a meeting if you're not sober. You, ha you have to be sober to attend an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Uh, beca because if you're, if you're not sober and you go to a, it, it doesn't help. It's not helpful for you and it's not helpful for the others. And so this man was not the only one. See, this, we think that, well, this man was the only one struggling with porneia. That's not, what, that's not what Paul says. You have to look at chapter 6, of, of verses 9 and 10 and 11. Thieves and greedy and drunkards and idolaters and sexually immoral and those who practiced homosexuality. And such were some of you. So, so Paul says, look, you're, you're not helping yourself and you're not helping others. There are others who are struggling and who have, who have who've been hurt badly by this. And so that's why Paul says, out of love. Out of love, purge the evil from among you. And you know what? You know what? It worked. God's way works. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 11 is a follow-up to what we read in 1 Corinthians 5. This man was so overwhelmed from being separated from the people that he loved in Christ, that he, he repented. Listen, listen. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has not caused it to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So, so once Paul finds out that the person has repented, Paul just comes alongside with the shepherd's love. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that you, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. 
for we are not ignorant of his designs. God's way works. And if you have someone in your life who loves you enough to encourage you to walk according to the standards of Jesus, you, you are rich. You're rich. And that's an act of grace. That they, that they care about you enough to tearfully say, you can choose that lifestyle if you want. I, you know, we love you, but not here. It's heavy, isn't it? It's heavy. So what's the big idea? Well, here's the big idea. The lamb was slain. Now live clean. That's the big idea. That's Paul's point in verses 6 through 8. Paul uses the picture of the Passover feast from Israel's history. Paul says a little bit of yeast makes the dough rise. And when that yeast works itself into the batch, the entire batch is affected by it. But you are to be yeast-free. You are to be unleavened bread. So the night before the Hebrews left Egypt, they were told to slaughter a lamb and put its blood over the doorpost and to eat their meal in haste, which meant you can't use yeast in your bread because that just takes too much time. You need to be ready to go. You need to be, you need to be ready to quickly consume that meal and be packed and ready to go. And that's the point of Paul's imagery here with, with unleavened bread. And so what Paul is saying is, church family, the, our whole life in Christ is one long Passover feast. Every breath a Christian takes is a silent Passover hymn of gratitude to the God who has acted to save the world through Jesus, the true Passover lamb. Every action a Christian performs is is part of this endless ceremonial Passover celebration. And at this Passover, there must be no leaven, because leaven represents Egypt, the old way of life. The leaven of the old, you left that life when you came to Christ. And that's why verse 7 is the key verse in this chapter. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So Paul says, here's who you are. Now I want you to live in a manner which accords with who you are. Christ the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. He's cleansed us. Now let's live like clean people. Let's let's live like the people Christ says we are. There it is. Paul is calling us to act like the people Christ already says we are. You are unleavened now. So here is how unleavened people ought to live. And the problem with the Corinthians is that they were paying attention to the wrong patron. They were denouncing their faith in Christ by trying to fit in. And you can't serve two masters. Their eyes were fixed on an earthly patron when they needed to focus on the heavenly patron. Jesus, our messianic patron. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you've been called. He called you. He chose you. He established you. 
He supplies you with every gift. He is sustaining you to the end. He is faithful to you. You do not owe your allegiance to an earthly patron. You belong to Christ. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. And why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain for us. What I want you to know is that without Jesus, we cannot be the church. With Jesus, we must not be anything else. And it's not just sexual immorality that's singled out. Did you see? It's greediness, abusiveness, theft. American individualism has seriously diluted the church's community potential to lovingly exercise spiritual direction. To, to the point where when loving correction is offered in the name of Christ, that can look like a pursuit of self-righteousness by the few instead of the pursuit of Christ-likeness by the many. And at the same time, some take this passage and deputize themselves on a spiritual seek-and-destroy mission. And they go looking for someone to excommunicate. And that's not what this is about either. You know, church discipline is best done through discipleship. You know, just one-on-one, one-on-one. And it's the responsibility of networks and relationships in our church community to foster Christ-likeness and to bring guidance to the lifestyle testimony of its members. And it's the responsibility of each of us to love one another enough to strengthen the testimony so that the world will know, so that the world will know. These, these, look what love they have for one another. Can you imagine Can you imagine a church community filled with brothers and sisters in Christ who have such a pure and true level of love for one another? They will not, they they don't let anything that has to do with the world get in between them. They love the world, but they're not going to love the stuff of the world. They're not going to let the stresses of our culture divide us. They're not going to let the leaven of society ferment in them. They're not going to let the disappointments on the front page news dilute their love for one another. They're committed to Christ, committed to community, committed to gospel truth. I want to be a part of that church, don't you? Without Christ, we can't be the church. And with Christ, we shouldn't be anything else. So that's why we, that's why we go to Salt and Light. To serve together in a community of love. That's why we're going to pray over our Montana team. That's why we have six... Serving in community events this summer. That's why we disciple our children in our children's ministry. We need teachers and volunteer servants to disciple our little ones. That's why. That's why on Wednesday evenings we're going to be having, I guess you could call it a program night for our um, students. And uh, I'm going to be teaching a class uh, this fall. The lamb was slain. Now live clean. Thank you, Lord.